Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Talking to two of the deniers, the medical doctors that are, they just say, and they just sit in the righteous position, we'll prove it. You know, find it in a tick and then we'll change. They just said, well, there's no evidence. And, you know, as Dr. Cameron said, you know, patients are the evidence in emerging disease. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I am your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 194 with Lyme Disease Association of Australia CEO, Sharon Whiteman. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn the protocol Sharon Whiteman used to control her Lyme disease, what the most common misdiagnosis of Lyme disease is in Australia, and why Lyme disease should be considered an emerging disease. Thanks, Aurora, and be sure to listen to the end of the podcast for this week's Lyme Ninja Fact of the Day. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week, we have listeners join us from all of the world. And this past week, we've had listeners from India to Italy and from Peru to Portugal. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really, really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lyme Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And speaking of tuning in... This week, our top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Encinitas, California. Number 9, Poughkeepsie, New York. Not Poughkeepsie, but Poughkeepsie. Number 8, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Number 7, Gainesville, Florida. Number 6, Duluth, Minnesota. Number 5, Cleveland, Ohio. Number 4, Toronto, Canada. Number 3, Duncan, Canada. Number 2, Park Rapids, Minnesota. And number 1, Balham, UK. Kind of cool. Yeah, I think so. Also, do you know your Lime score? If not, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com. Fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. Okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Sharon Whiteman. Sharon Whiteman is the CEO of Lyme Disease Association of Australia and a triple certificate clinical nurse. 
Sharon has worked in the field of health and wellness for almost 40 years. She was an intensive care unit nurse for 20 years and has been part of the LDAA since it was founded in 2009. The LDAA's goals are to advocate for sick Australians, facilitate best practices, and educate both medical communities and the Australian public about tick-borne disease in Australia. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Sharon Whiteman. Hello. Hello. So very nice to meet you. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. So you've been doing this for quite a while, haven't you? You know, I think it's going on four years this fall or this uh, middle of the summer. And tomorrow we'll be coming out with episode number 186. So, yeah, we've been doing it a while. Holy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I am recording. I always forget to say this. Okay. I'm recording now. I mean, we can we can always cut out this chit chat before it can be part of the interview. It's really, it's really up to you if you want to chat a little bit before we get going, or we can just keep going. It's up to you. Yeah, no, I'm. I do a lot of talking, <laughs> so I'm used to. It's, I'm really passionate about our issues. It's a match made in heaven, then. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It's so it's so important that um, people reach out and make a difference where they can, you know, in their own area of expertise. You know, I think that's what make the world go round, really. And as Lyme patients, we really, really, really have to unite globally. Yes, it is a global problem. It absolutely is. It's been quite a while since I've spoken to anybody from Australia, and I'm very, very happy that we connected. And okay. Why don't you tell me the short version of your Lyme story? Certainly. Well, it's my pleasure, but <laughs> obviously not a happy story. Um, I'm, as you might hear from my accent, I'm Canadian-born. Uh, so I don't, although my family thinks I now have an Australian accent, I've been here 30 years. I think you're halfway and, in between. <laughs> yeah, I'm a mixture, <laughs> hybrid. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I got bit by tick on the Sunshine Coast, which is on the east sort of central coast of australia so it's in queensland it's a beautiful beautiful area sort of semi-rural lots of bushland and beautiful area and at that time i lived on a on a property where we had a lot of kangaroos and we had a cattle property next door and lots of possums and we would it it was a terrible property for ticks Uh, we had um, two dogs and two cats at the time and wouldn't be unusual to get seven to ten ticks off our pets a day in tick season and what type of ticks do you have there? Um, listen, I don't have all the technical okay. uh, side of the tick story. No um, worries. But the most dangerous one for us, and they're now finding it competent for certain pathogens, are the um, paralysis tick. Hmm. And um, I, it's the Ixodes. I can't remember the tick. Oh, name. I, listen, I can't pronounce any Latin names either. So <laughs> Paralysis anyway, tick, thought, huh? Sounds dangerous. Yeah, one, Absolutely. And then the, I think Lyme patients have nightmares about ticks now. <laughs> they but, do. They um, do. We, I got bit by a tick and I started to feel really unwell. And I'd had a few tick bites before and I thought this was unusual. By evening, I had full-blown flu and then I had a bullseye rash on the, at the tick bite site. And it was a little nymph tick. Yeah. And unfortunately, I got up and, and um, searched online because I thought, oh, I, feel, I don't feel good at all. And um, I only found an entomology site 
which said that uh, you know the bullseye rash is um, rarely fatal. It didn't talk that it didn't talk about disease or pathogens. Rarely fatal. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I thought, okay, I'll just keep taking all my you know natural immune support, and you know we'll get on top of this. It's weird. So. Um, and I didn't actually then connect it, nor did any doctors with my decline into disability over the next four years. Really? Um, yeah. By t- 2005, six and seven, I couldn't walk unaided. Oh. I was very Alzheimer's presentation. I had pain 24-7. They had to help me get up from the couch, had to hang onto the walls to balance. Um, I didn't know my family's names all the time. Oh, I wasn't cruel. orientated to date or year. I get lost. It's three minute drive into town, yeah, yeah. and I get lost um, getting there. So it was a, a terrible, terrible time. So um, I had a chance meeting. I work in in nutrition. I have a network marketing home business in nutrition that I'm really passionate about. I love, and I had a chance meeting through that business um, with the U.S. doctor, and he said you need to be tested for Lyme disease. So, and he was from Florida, so he uh, recommended the, at that time the Central Florida Research Lab, um, and I sent my blood there and my partner's because my partner had a um, a different tick bite and a different kind of rash, but it yes. was a cyclical, recurring sort of four to six weekly rash. Mm-hmm. So I sent both of our blood off, and we both came back positive for. And interestingly. DNA positive for Borrelia burgdorferi. Really? Um, and that was, that was one of my questions. Was it burgdorferi? And it was yeah. even over there. Amazing. Yeah. However, it's highly disputed in Australia. But, um, and <laughs> so course. I had an answer, but it didn't help because you know, obviously there's, you know, it's not recognized here. Doctors just dismiss it immediately. And at that time, I didn't even know any doctors or networks or, you know, Facebook groups or anything um, in where patients gather together to pass on information. So, um, and by 2007, I was, um, I just had just, you know, resigned myself to dying. And, um, I, my mother-in-law came to visit and saw how bad I'd become since her last visit. So she went online looking and she found the salt and sea protocol. Uh, so the high dose vitamin C and high dose sodium chloride, Mm. again, a very controversial, treatment for many people but I had that point I had no hope no help yeah and I like I had nothing to lose so I tried it within 18 months I'd recovered about 70 percent and was that intravenously or liposomally no just Norton just (laughs) absolutely eating salt like pharmaceutical salt without any you know additives and just normal sodium ascorbate so it's not a it's you know and one of the doctors that saw me recover he he was um he was an open-minded guy and he went on to become a Lyme treating doctor, but he witnessed my recovery. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, you know, he started doing research because it didn't make any sense to his medical mind. And, you know, he thinks that maybe some of these pathogens don't, don't have a sodium pump, but what ah, the salt is like, like brine, right? So it's got, um, um, it increases it's well, you know how brine cures meat and it has yeah, yeah, for, of course. So, <clears throat> so you increase the sodium chloride and the bite. And it, I think supposedly the people who formulated it, you know, again, you know, Lyme patients who are desperate will get very creative. Absolutely. And, um, it's, it's a system out of the U.S. It's been around for a long time. And they get a lot of vilification and attack because it's unusual. And cheap. But it <laughs> Yeah, and it's really cheap, too. Yeah. You know, like compared to other Lyme treatments, you know, most people, and you know, it's wiped our family out financially. Yeah, yeah. And so, but 
by the time, you know, I found out what I had and how hard you really need to work at it, um, you know, we'd used up all our, we'd sold our assets, you know, through loss of income and stuff like that. So yeah. anyway, I was very grateful for Saltancy and it, it kept me alive and kept me, you know, I was still disabled compared to who my full healthy self was. Um, but I could contribute again. And that's by 2012, I put my hand, well, 2010, actually, I put my hand up to help the Lyme Disease Association. And um, I was behind the scenes for a few years because we had young kids. And um, in 2012, I put my hand up to help more. And then mysteriously, I became president of the organization at that time. And, you know, we've been working hard to it carried the baton so forward, so to speak, yes. and uh, we've been working hard to make changes for Australian Lyme patients uh, since that time. Fabulous. That's well. That's what happens when you miss a meeting. You get uh, elected yeah. president. <laughs> it, was, it actually was something like that. Yeah, <laughs> not not far. Well, obviously, you've embraced it, and you haven't run screaming from the room. And that. that oh well, no, I can't say that I don't feel like it some days, but um. You know, I'm someone, you know, I was a nurse and, um, you know, from as young as I can remember, I just wanted to help people. Mm. And, you know, I just can't witness this injustice um, and the, the just stark abuse and neglect that Australian patients uh, receive at the hands of the medical system here and the government. And I just can't witness that and not try and do something. You know, I may not have all the skills, but... Um, you know, I have to contribute the ones I do have towards making a difference. Now, let me ask some completely ignorant questions. I mean, ignorant, not like, you know, I'm going to be a jerk, but ignorant as in, I just don't know. And the first one is, is anybody in Australia dragging for ticks and then having the ticks tested for tick-borne diseases? Well, um, in Australia, there was early evidence of all kinds of pathogens and ticks through the if you look on our website, we've got a timeline there where the early evidence showed. And in the, you know, the 50s and 60s, the CSIRO, which is a scientific lab, which has really been kneecapped in Australia due to loss of government funding and, and a, a complete lack of government priority in, in science. And but early on, there was they had Borrelias. There's a Borrelia queenslandica that they called tick typhus in Queensland. Mm. So that you know there was a lot of evidence emerging. And then around and you know my our perspective at the Lyme Disease Association is is that we have the exact you know there's no incidents known here because no one's counting. Yes, of course. But our early signs and evidence of Borrelia in Australia happened prior to the North America, and our recognition of clusters in patients. Um, happened around the same time as it did in Lyme, Connecticut. And then around that same time, there was um, a very prestigious and government-backed research group, uh, and it's called the Russell and Doggett Study, that studied ticks. And there was a young uh, researcher doing her PhD called Michelle Wills at a different uni, at Newcastle Uni, who was finding Borrelia in ticks and humans at that time. And she had her um, findings corroborated with uh, Wilhelm Bergdoffers. You know, Dr. Borbor uh, confirmed that they were finding what she found. So she had that, her findings corroborated. And they published around the same time in uh, 93, 94. And sadly, and criminally, um, the Russell and Doggett prestigious researcher, you know, established research group 
were accepted his their findings and hers were just buried basically <laughs> and as part of um, our Senate inquiry process that we had recently in Australia we uncovered a lot of that research we were able to connect with her she's basically you know separated herself from research because of a few experience that one and a few other experience she have as being a young female researcher in a very male dominated um, community at that time in the early 90s and um, she uh, fully cooperated with us. We were able to interview her and um, get, get more evidence on record for the government, for their Senate inquiry, and expose what really happened there. So I guess um, to, it's a long answer to your question, but most research stopped with that 1994 study, and it's only resumed really in the, about the last three years. There's um, a research, there's a few pockets of tick research, but no, they're not doing a massive white sheet um, polling for ticks in Australia like you see in the US. And um, and while they need to do it, you know, at the LDAA, our perspective is it, it, they, they've lost the right to only look at ticks now. You know, there's a lot of evidence, you know, questions. They just keep saying, well, you know, prove it. You know, find pathogens in ticks and... So far, our researchers aren't finding Borrelia burgdorferi in ticks, but, you know, you have to question the methodology and whether, you know, we tend, we're, what we're seeing is they're trying to reinvent the wheel here instead of seeing what's happened in the last 25 years globally and getting up to speed and, and using innovation. So, um, no, there's not enough tick research, but we don't believe that tick research can be the priority now that they need to immediately um, ascertain that ticks are making uh, patients sick, Australians sick, and that they need to make tick bites and any uh, illness after tick bites notifiable. And they need to empower the doctors that have been working really hard and are being vilified, uh, but are still, no matter what strain of Borrelia it is or co-infection, um, they're recovering with Lyme treatment. So they're getting, you know, they're reporting about 75% of people getting back into quality of life and into their, you know, into their communities and families and contributing again, which that's significant. And they should be, you know, they should be applauded and uh, supported, not vilified and shut down, which is sadly what's happening. So I live in a small town that is, uh, let's say, two and a half, three hours from Lime Central, let us say, down in the, the Hudson Valley, and uh, maybe three hours or a little bit more in, in, into even Lime, Connecticut. So it's not that far away. And I just, they just, the state, our state, New York State, just made available their research studies on, on collecting ticks. And I think this, this will support your point of view a little bit. And so I went on and clicked on, so they have county by county report and we're in Oneida County, New York and Oneida County has the results from 2013, 14, 15 and 16 on, on a tick drag and then testing the ticks. So in 13, 14 and 15, they didn't collect any ticks in their drag. And I'm thinking wow. to myself, did they drag a parking lot? <laughs> you know, it's like, what, where, where were they and what time? You, it's like, I want to know some details right that. And then, and then all of a sudden, 2016, they drag and collect ticks and half the ticks have Burgdorferi in it. 
Borrelia burgdorferi. And they're, mm. they're not testing for anything else, of course. That's just, you know, one form of the Borrelia. Yeah. And, you know, it's just such a, it's just so ridiculous. Around here, if you want to know what's going on with Lyme disease, you talk to the veterinarians and they'll tell you whether or not they're treating Lyme. They've got good tests. They've got, they don't have the political pressure and it's just out there in the open. And then you go walk across the street to a physician and then it's just like, well, not quite as bad as Australia, I don't think, but it's, it's pretty bad. And they'll say, Oh yeah. no, it's not here. We don't have yeah. it here. It's ridiculous. It's insane. It's non-scientific, isn't it? It makes you shake your head. Um, no, but even common sense would tell you. And there's there's so much evidence, you know, with climate change and, you know, floods and fires and animals and ticks being in places where they never used to be. And why don't they just use common sense and make the leap and be cautious and aggressive with their evaluations and testings and, and research as opposed to waiting for what is happening, which will be a global pandemic of misdiagnosed stealth pathogen illness. Yeah, it already is, isn't it? It is a pandemic. There's yeah, no doubt absolutely. about it. You know, I don't know what it's like in the Australia, and so this is really a setup question for you to tell me what it's like there. But but here, what it is, is it doesn't pay to rock the boat for a physician. And over the past, eh, let's say 10 years, most physicians have got an, gotten out of private practice and are employed by hospitals now. And the reason they did that was for the reimbursement rates. You get reimbursed more through a hospital than you did in private practice. So it kind of just made sense for everybody to move in that direction. And because of that, now they're employees and they have to toe the line. And the line is whatever the professional associations say. And the professional associations, the IDSA here in America says that Lyme disease is not a problem. So what's it like, you know, what, what's the roadblocks over there in Australia? Oh, man, it's horrific for doctors um, and patients. You know, you, you only take one look at our um, uh, Senate the evidence on our Senate inquiry, there's about almost 1,400 submissions that we know of, because I think some never got published. We had a lot of political um, unrest at that time and what they call it, Australia double disillusion, where they had sort of a gridlock in Parliament and they just call, called a halt. You know, they did completely dissolved government and they went to uh. vote. And so our that was midstream in our Senate inquiry, if you can believe it. So that, and bring, so we had that brought a, everything to a halt? Complete halt, everything. Yeah. <laughs> The whole government, and including our inquiry. It's a really um, big conspiracy. <laughs> they shut down the entire government to hide it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could say it. We'll use that one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and they resumed. And then because there's such a backlog of um, a oh. delay, a backlog of work in the government. Of course. Um, and of submissions. Not all of our submissions actually got published. So we don't really – they're on the they're on their record. But um, – um, not so much redacted, but not published. So we don't know exactly how many submissions, but there is ample evidence. As a matter of fact, we had a, a retired um, health department microbiologist from Australia who came to us anonymously after it finished. And he said to me, Sharon, uh, you know, he called and he said, I want to help you. He said, I've read every submission and our government is failing Australians. There's a very clear pattern of emerging illness. If, so if anybody took time to read the evidence and looked at it from an epidemiological perspective, there's no, there's no doubt if there was a public health official that cared and that was honest, you know, I'm, I'm making big claims here, but 
I, I, you have to make up things like that to understand why there would be so much evidence on the rec record and not immediate concern and action on behalf of sick Australians. So what's the so, what's the hold up there? What's the hold? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I could only speculate. But of we course. don't really know. You know, obviously, um, you know, the, the people from the Russell and Doggett study haven't died yet. <laughs> and, well, you know. You know, we joke about that, but that's absolutely true. As most most progress happens when the old guard dies off and it makes room for the new guard to come. Absolutely. And, you know, it's you know, ego and all that stuff. Back. Yeah. But because um, they're still working. But um, I mean, I think that has to part of it. Um, and the, you know, the Office of Health Protection here, um, the gatekeepers there are well connected with pathology. And, you know, so you could speculate it's about medical ego trying to protect their, you know, and that's why, you know, you have to wonder why they refuse to call it Lyme disease. So right now, our Department of Health, our Federal Department of Health is sticking with the 1970s definition of Lyme disease, which is a single North American strain of Borrelia burgdorferi. Right. Burgdorferi, whichever um, I always say Burgdorferi, but I hear different people say it differently. But um, and so, you know, while the rest of the world is progressing and seeing, you know, Lyme disease as an umbrella definition, you know, where it's a multi-pathogen, multi, you know, stealth pathogen illness. And in, you know, yes, as we go forward, we'll have the luxury of determining which strains and if there's particular treatment for different strains that are more effective than others. But in the short term, you don't leave people sick and dying and suffering because, you know, as you and I both know, to be sick with Lyme disease is pure torture. Um, you don't leave those people like that while you go, well, gee, we don't want to treat them because we don't have proof that this type of treatment helps that strain of Borrelia. You know, the facts are, Jack, that there is these patients in Australia are getting better with Lyme disease treatment. And, it, you know, we can worry about which strain it is and what's the most effective treatment and the most effective antimicrobial, whether it be, you know, antibiotics or herbal approach. That, that can come down the track. In the meantime, just do your best with world's best practice treatment. So why? I don't know. Um, and one of the other particular problems in Australia, I don't know if it's similar in the U.S., but there's different, we've got uh, state and territory health offices, and they have certain um, governance over certain parts of health. And then we have the federal government that has another. So they have, and they meet like something like twice a year. So our topic, get, you know, for the last four years, it's been brought up as a, you know, a tick on a list of things to talk about. But there's been no urgent action pushed, or we'll st there's still, and it, the stance is, there's no evidence yet. So they're still looking at ticks in the meantime, leaving people to, to suffer and die. So I believe that within a, you know, and our organization believes that with a 25 year gap in research with no prioritized research since the um, early nineties, they no longer have the luxury to make patients wait while they look at ticks. You know, I spoke to Dr. Daniel Cameron. Mm -hmm. um, middle of our, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He was very generous with his time with me. And, you know, I said, if you were in our shoes, what would you do? And he says, you know, with that kind of gap of prioritized research, you need to look at this from an emerging disease perspective. And patients need to be treated with the best of the knowledge a day while research is, is progressed, not after research has proven what's here. <laughs> That's right. Like the, yeah. the current Ebola outbreak right now, they're rushing a, a vaccine out there that hasn't been tested. Right. But yeah, they're not absolutely. they're not waiting. 
No, absolutely. And we had a, this huge thing about uh, Zika a couple of years ago. Yeah, here, yeah, right? us too. Yeah. Oh, and they, you know, then they're, you know, you know, almost. I'm being dramatic here, but almost stopping the planes. Don't let Zika into Australia. And I think there was one foreign person that came here with Zika or something like that. That overnight they threw four million at it, and there was this massive action plan for Zika, right? We've got thousands and probably tens of thousands. We estimate our incidence will be the same as the U.S. So that means per capita 10,000 new cases a year and probably 250 to 300,000 um, people misdiagnosed in Australia because in the last 25 years of, of denial of this disease. You know, and you have one person coming off a plane, and they throw exactly, food. and and that, that's that's one of those those big mysteries. Is why does something like Zika capture everybody's attention, and then why does something like Lyme, which is as prevalent, maybe more prevalent, and more, way more prevalent, yeah, and 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 as big as a problem for for the patients, you know. But I, I guess one one thing it doesn't do is it, you know, the, the the babies don't come out with with three arms or whatever happened with the Zika. You know, yeah. it's not as dramatic. You don't have dramatic pictures. Matter of fact, you have people that kind of look normal, but it's like, why are you still lying in bed? So yeah, absolutely. You know who knows? It's primarily an invisible illness. It, it? It's so invisible. It's so invisible. Brutally invisible. So yeah, you know, and it's and it's not about money because. You know, if you really did, if you really had your act together as a government, you'd be worried about the money you're spending on disability and <laughs> health care. You'd be urgently prioritized treating these people and getting back into their jobs and communities and families. Uh, the burden of disease is just overwhelming. And even, you know, they invited um, Dr. Richard Horowitz to be a Senate wis- witness. And so he spoke to them very clearly the whole I was there. For his presentation, his, the evidence that he gave at the Senate inquiry, you know, very clear education to our government and call to action on what it looks like when you deny and ignore a disease and the numbers of disability. I recently had, um, we've got huge pockets of motor neuron and MS in Australia. Hmm. And they're suspicious. In, Exactly. And especially right around the motor neuron hotspot right now is right around where the first signs, where that first research was done on the central coast of New South Wales, the first hotspot of, of Lyme positive patients. And um, that got squashed because, you know, one lab found it and one another didn't. But, you know, that lab that I mentioned, the prestigious one where we're waiting for the, the old guard to <laughs> retire. <laughs> yeah. I won't say die because that might be a bit too vicious. But, um that that um around that same area they've got a huge motor neuron hotspot and that lab criminally found that they reported in that 1994 study that they had uh spiroketal artifacts so they they saw spiroketal like objects mm-hmm. but they did no further review Mm-hmm. So ultimately, just their testing process wasn't able to identify it, and they didn't. You know, they culture is such a grossly yeah. inaccurate way to determine. Right, um, it is. Yeah. So, so but, but you know, they hopefully stop there. They stop there. They'll put some. Yeah, absolutely. Some legal minds on that one day, and really put the blame where it should be. <laughs> you are an optimist. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm much more cynical. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, you know, 
there, justice should be happening. But, it, you know, right now, the most important justice is that Australians need to be diagnosed and treated urgently. Um, I had a really, um, I don't know if it's a happy or sad situation, but I recently saw a colleague of mine online, you know, she just happened to mention on Facebook that she was getting a wheelchair. And I thought, oh, my goodness. She lived in another city. I hadn't seen her in a while except for, you know, virtually. So I reached out to her and said, what happened? She says, oh, I've been diagnosed with motor neuron disease. So then I'm in this dilemma of should I say anything or I shouldn't. So I said, listen, you know, I have, you know, I need to get your permission to ask you a few questions. It might be slightly upsetting in your situation, um, but I wouldn't feel good if I didn't. And long story short, I asked her if she had any tick bites. They had, you know, hundreds of tick bites she described growing up on the farm. And she's got multiple, you know, chronic illnesses, um, really, uh, her gut. Um, a lot of gut problems. I don't want to disclose too much, but you know, obviously, we both both we us know that could be stealth pathogen illness yeah, as well. And now she's progressed to motor neuron, and she goes, "Well, you know what? You know, I got this really bad flu after walking through Central Park in, on our trip to New York, <laughs> and and I've never been right since then." Yeah. And I said, "Well, that's a classic first sign of Lyme disease." Yeah. And right now in Australia, you won't have the opportunity to be have Lyme disease included as part of your differential diagnosis. But I need to tell you that motor neuron is a very common misdiagnosis of uh, Lyme disease. So she was a Christian lady. And, you know, I just encouraged her to talk to her family. I said, it may or may not be. And it's not even easy to test. So, you know, you're going to have to make some of your own decisions here. But, you know, talk to your family and see if you want to risk, you know, being disappointed. So they went back, they all talked about it because they were busy helping her with their bucket list for their last two years with her. Oh. And um, long story short, she decided that they wanted to evaluate it. I found out from one of the Lyme treating doctors, you know, where, because the waiting lists are like 18 months here, right? So she can't wait for that. So I found out which specific tests to get. And then we started on the hunt for a GP to order these tests to even have the first step. Her GP refused. We found one in a, in an area of Australia where there's a there's known tick bite illness, even though it's not recognized, the GPs there they know people get sick after tick bites, and they will under the radar give them antibiotics immediately. Mm-hmm. And so this guy she went to, and he said, "Listen, if I was in your shoes, I would want the same thing. Yeah. But if I was back positive, I can't help you." So he signed all the forms to get tested. Her first test came back positive for mycoplasma, which is implicated in motor neuron also a pathogen illness, also can be tick-borne. And her SPECT scan was grossly abnormal, not consistent with motor neuron disease. And then her overseas testing came back positive for Borrelia. So um, she then, you know, we connected with a U.S. doctor where she's getting treatment long distance. And she's now just gone to Cyprus for two months of intensive um, ozone therapy as part of, you know, not the only thing, but as part of her you know, trying to yeah, climb back for life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, I can't do that with everybody that's diagnosed with motor neuron. You know, and she met someone at church a couple of weeks later whose wife was just diagnosed with motor neuron disease. And hers is slightly atypical in that it started in her throat. So she just stopped being able to talk. Wow. And, uh, but it happened after a tick bite and a bullseye rash. <laughs> and this got, this, this husband had seen. It's just a, painful. These stories are painful. Oh, man, it's criminal. And he'd seen something on TV, so he knew what a bullseye rash after tick bite meant. He saw a TV show. 
He went to the doctor. He said, no, 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 we don't have it. He says, you wouldn't help me. So this man, this gentleman, he was in midlife. He was crying on the phone to me. He loved his wife so much. And so anyway, now we've helped him. Yet I, I haven't heard like, you know, any results of her test, but she's fairly advanced. And, you know, and, I, and sadly, I have to say, do you have money? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. unless you do, you know, anyway. So she's gone on to get tested. And then I had another one yesterday. So I don't know. It's just... You know, you should be able just to work full time. And, and, and I guess some people, you know, they don't want to hope, you know, once they've just, I guess once they've had that diagnosis and come to terms with it, you know, they don't want to rock the boat or they won't stand up. Um, but I guess because I was a, you know, I was a triple certificate clinical nurse specialist and I worked in critical care for 20 years and I expected healthcare to be authentic and integral and I respected that profession and my career and I've been so betrayed by them that I I just question everything now and I believe people have and I support people in being very informed healthcare consumers and you know you have to search for doctors today whether it's Lyme or any other thing and you have to find the ones that will work with you and work in partnership with you you know towards and what needs personalized medicine doesn't it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, that's um, that's um, that's not in the cards right now. Right now, we're in cookie cutter medicine, and it's being disguised as uh, science based medicine. And it's just uh, their their protocols is public health, so they're they're trying to take care of the most people that they can with the single treatment. And if you happen to be the ten twenty percent who fall between the cracks, well, uh, you know, we're sorry. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously there will be a minority of doctors and this, and really it's the system that's broken, isn't it? You know, I think, you know, you could still probably say that most health professionals go in it for the right reasons. Oh, of course. Um, and the system is broken, but, you know, I think that we all have a duty to stand up when the system's broken and when we witness it and, and fight for it to be fixed. Well, it ends up being a low intensity war and when when you fight the system people lose their jobs people lose yeah. their standing in the community there's lots of costs yeah. to it so it takes a lot of courage Absolutely. or a lot of desperation uh to to stand up and fight so i even have compassion for the people who aren't aren't willing to fight um it's well yeah we're not walking in their shoes are we you yeah, know, they, you know, yeah. Got they've got a, exactly they've got a lot to lose and um you know they're so I, I don't think it's the right thing, but it's 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 understandable. It's like you know, it's like oh, I, I wish you really would, but you know, yeah, I I, I hear you. So the, the thing to do is to keep finding people who really are have a fighting spirit and are willing to stand up and and rock the boat a little bit and make a little bit of noise, and and to find those advocates and, and start there. One one of the things that's happened here in the U.S is finally, after years and years and years, a tiny little bit of legislation got passed to set up a federal uh, working group on on Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses. And, of course, the devil's always in the details. And there was enough attention paid that when they were putting together the the actual regulation for at, at the Department of Health and Human Services was they made sure that there were some patients on this panel. 
And that made all the difference in the world. And, you know, it's, I, I just heard a report coming out of there. And it, it's, you know, the progress they're going to make is modest, right? They're not going to be able to address everything. That, you know, they, they're going to do a report this year and then in another two years. And, you know, the, on one hand, it's, it's exciting. On the other hand, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be mad and frustrated because it's like they're not going to be able to chop down the tree with one swing. You know, they're just going to take a little chunk out of it. And some of this, unfortunately, with big organizations, and as soon as the government's in charge of anything, whether it's healthcare or whether it's legislation or research dollars, it takes little chips. You know, you got to chip and chip away at it, unless some, some crisis happens, right? You know, like it gets people's attention, it's like the Zika thing, you know, for whatever reason that just got organized. But for the most part, most things, 99.9% .9 of stuff that happens in government is slow and messy and you got to be dogged and you just got to stay after it. You know, you find your one or two allies and you just keep working and working and working. Absolutely. I completely agree. And, um, as far as government action here, um, we've been as part of our organization. Um, it doesn't matter which government, which party's in, um, labor or liberal or major. Uh, five su successive health ministers, all being advised by the same group of doctors. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and get and they said, well, we can't challenge doctors. Right. But they're the experts, you know, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, this retired microbiologist that I mentioned earlier, he said, absolutely not. You know, I've been, he was, he gave me all these examples of when the health minister just draws a line in the sand, says, we got to take action on this now. And everybody starts running that he ha does have the most power in the land in regards to health decisions. And thankfully, and I think in part, I can credit the Senate inquiry because there was senators as part of that committee committee that from from multiple uh, parties. So there was liberal, labor, greens, and independents, and they all saw the same evidence. And they're horrified that Australians cannot get world-class healthcare uh, in this country. And that, you know, one of the um, liberal senators who I just highly admire, uh, Senator Linda Reynolds, and so they're in government, and, you know, I can remember her talking to two of the deniers, the medical doctors that are, they just say, and they just sit in the righteous position, we'll prove it, you know, find it in a tick and then we'll change. Mm. And I just said, well, there's no evidence. And, you know, as Dr. Cameron said, you know, patients are the evidence in emerging disease and, you know, they're at least a third of the evidence and you can't deny patients are sick. You just, you know, it's like doctors are just trying to put round pegs into a square hole. You know, we don't have this evidence. So it doesn't matter what I see in these patients you know, we'll just, you know, put it in the area of conversion disorder or depression or fibromyalgia. Um, and I can remember I, it was like time stood still for me in this Senate inquiry hearing. And Senator Reynolds said, was saying to this doctor, I feel like I'm talking to the flat earth people here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it was it's just, the same, like, but no, it is. And, and this same play has been played out. Year after, yeah, for over centuries, over millennia, and it's the same argument. People, the Greeks, there were some Greeks who would kill each other based on not whether they believed in the, the zero as a number. You know, it's yeah. like people will die for their beliefs. It's in, it's literally insane, but that's human beings, you know, and yeah. unfortunately, yeah. Lyme disease, you know, is one at these crossroads 
where a lot of really dysfunctional things all come together at once. And it's just, it's stuck in a deep rut, you know, and it's stuck all over the world. And it just is taking so much effort, like people like you and your organization. And, uh, you know, I like to say Lyme disease, even here in the States, is diagnosed (laughs) over the backyard fence. It's not Mm -hmm. diagnosed in the doctor's office. It really isn't. It comes from the patient saying, hmm, could it be Lyme? Mm. You know, or their neighbor Absolutely. or their friend or their, the person yeah. at church from personal experience. Cause it isn't, it's not, like you said, it's not part of the differential diagnosis. It literally doesn't exist there because they don't yeah. see it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, you know, most recently, um, what's happened is the current health minister that, um, is the liberal government. You know, I'm certain that Senator Linda Reynolds, also a liberal senator, um, you know, her personal experience, you know, you get the lived experience of knowing you look in the eye, belly to belly with someone and you hear their story and you know, they're not lying. Mm-hmm. And that experience for her, I'm sure that's the reason why we now have our first federal health minister that I believe is listening. Now what actually he will take and can take, I don't know, but he's, um, out of the recommendation of the Senate inquiry, which, you know, to use one of the senators, uh, and one of our medical advisors' words, uh, they left themselves a lot of wriggle room here in what the recommendations were. So of, they're pretty, of course, not speci- yeah, yeah. specific <laughs> enough. Course. But the action that has been taken, he immediately last July prioritized three million for research, which obviously is a drop in the bucket, a million less than Zika, with right. one four case arriving on a plane. But it's <laughs> but it's something. Right. Yeah. You know, it's that first chip. So it's like, it's a place to stand and get started. Yeah. And then, um, uh, and, and then he held a ministerial forum, which we were uh, liaising with his advisor for eight months and they did, you know, liaise with the patient representation and really find out what we wanted. And, you know, what was, you know, like from a political or government perspective, one of our advisors is an ex-senior public servant. And she goes, you know, in government, you have to engage with the stakeholder. And it's, you know, no decisions for us without us. That's that's the goal, right? So that yeah, you're not there sitting in government making decisions about people you haven't consulted with. Mm-hmm. And so we were included in this consultation process. And so for nine months, we nutted out all these things that we wanted and how we saw the best way going forward. And then all of a sudden, there was a change of advisor and, it, all of a sudden, that communication was stopped. There's a new advisor, and then we just we were out of the loop. And then they announced this forum, which was 180 degree opposite of what we asked for. Hmm. And in this forum, they gave three weeks notice, in, and we were adamant we needed international oversight. And they gave three weeks notice to Dr. Schwarzbeck and, and Dr. Horowitz, which are Senate witnesses. Obviously, they couldn't attend in that short notice internationally. <laughs> then they didn't make teleconferencing available. And um, that's so suspicious. Kind of, <laughs> it's hilarious. And then yeah. we kind of felt like we were lambs going to slaughter, basically, Absolutely. because we, we got an agenda five days out and we weren't on the agenda. And um, so we walk into this room and we um, were the only patient representation. There was a medical doctor who is a Lyme treating doctor and Dr. McManus from the Carl McManus Foundation, um, who is also... She's more research focused, but, you know, is fighting for, she thinks that the pathogen 
here in Australia is most likely going to be a relapsing fever Borrelia, mm-hmm. but that's fine. We don't, yeah. I don't really care what, I mean, I know we have both because my symptoms are Burgdorferi and uh, not relapsing fever, but I know right. my partner's more a relapsing fever mm-hmm. symptomatology. So I'm sure we have both here, but, um, he, Minister Hunt oh, and also present were all, uh, representation from all the state and territory health offices and all the medical colleges. So infectious diseases, pediatrics, um, GPs. And he, Mr. Hunt came, came in with a lot of hoo-ha like you do when you're a minister and you know, everybody's always running, flurrying around because he was there and he opens the meeting and then he, he speaks to me and he, and he asks us to speak. So we had the first half hour of the floor, basically, after he opened the room. And he asked very well-informed questions. And he, I know he was horrified to hear that we're getting 100 patient requests a month that we're now sending overseas because there's no Lyme treating doctors that haven't been shut down by APRA. Their books are all closed. And, um, you know, from January this year, you know, we had so many stop that we just say, listen, if you're seriously worry about your health, seek overseas support. And I know that what didn't go down well uh, with him being in charge of health in this country. And, um, you know, I, I felt like he, he was genuinely concerned and genuinely engaged. So that was, you know, I don't know, I think we had him there for an hour. So, and that was April 18th. And it was, the report was due in two weeks, which hasn't come. And now they've committed by the end of May the report will be out. Um, so I guess, you know, we'll see what happens, what the prioritized action will be. Um, but we said the most important thing is to immediately make tick bites notifiable and you need to track patients, people, Australians with bites and those with symptoms and immediately empower doctors to treat with the best, the knowledge of the day. You need to protect these doctors against those that are trying to shut them down and um, obviously to prioritize research. So, and, and the other thing we said, you need international oversight. So the rest of the day was sort of downhill from then. Um, there was a lot of just uh, people are there because they're supposed to be, because they're told to be, and a lot of skepticism in the room. And, um, you know, I had to really stand up and talk to these doctors and just say, you know, I, I completely respect everybody's credentials and knowledge base in this room, but unless you've worked with Lyme disease patients for 10 years or more and you have a track record of getting 75% of them recovered to a degree that they're back in their life, then you can't claim to be an expert, uh, not an expert in Lyme disease. And that didn't go down well, but it's the truth. So I think I'm just thinking, I can see, I can sort of engaged back into that moment. But, you know, doctors, the system educates them to be experts. Mm -hmm. And so once you get a bunch of letters after your name, you think here, you know, you'll hear it everywhere now. Doctors give opinion in nutrition. They haven't studied nutrition. They'll give opinion in this. They're educated to be, you know, sort of godlike and know-all and, you know, they're not allowed to make mistakes. You know, it's very, obviously, it's a terrible situation for them as well. But in particular with Lyme disease, you need to be specialized and you need to have focused on it and you need to have a track record before we'll consider you an expert and consider your opinion to be an expert opinion. So is, isn't there an opening 
somewhere for some infectious disease person to treat people who, quote, unquote, contracted Lyme outside of Australia. Oh, well, you know, and I'm just, you know, with a wink, a wink and wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. Yeah. You know, like, okay, you're born in Canada. Well, I didn't get it here, but, you know, I have it now. So it's not your fault. But however, I need treatment. Yeah. In theory. (laughs) <laughs> and in theory that should be true and in theory you should get um be able to walk rock up and be tested and treated for bartonella and babesia they're known pathogens in ticks in australia um but the, still the fact is it just gets lumped with that lime word that they said well it, we don't have that we don't have we don't get this from ticks here and it is just like this it goes into this black hole of suspicion and denial and ignorance yeah you know the, the the whole the whole Lyme disease label has been a blessing but it's also been our curse and yeah. unfortunately you know it's it's such a narrow definition and tip of the spear tip of the iceberg whatever you you want to uh, call it um it, it's so limiting and you know for some of these we, we, i sat down so th- you know th- this is it's an international problem i sat down with a friend of mine who, who was a patient for a while he lost his ability he was a pediatric surgeon and had to retire mm-hmm. because of lyme disease and it was a recurrence. He had he had battled back from it once and got back to work. Yeah. And this time it just laid him low. And he had just moved to the area. And he was he was nationally known. He's author of books. I mean, he was just top top of his game, you know. And and right about uh, you know just mid fifties. So he had another ten fifteen years of, of being a rock star. And anyway, it it laid him low, right? And so he sets up a meeting with another. Uh, surgeon in in the area and uh you know we're just just kind of brainstorming and the the surgeon was was very sympathetic but at at the end of the meeting he said look you know it's like you're telling me there's no good test right Mm -hmm. and there's no good treatment and you know what 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 am i what am i supposed to do and and at that time you know we didn't have a good answer we didn't have mm. a good answer for him. Now, I was going to ask you also is where do you send your tests? Do you send them to Armin Labs? Do you send them to Igenix? Um, Depends on which side of Australia you're on. Okay. It's, it's really um, – and as you know, um, there's so much variation in methodology. Yes. And it's probably just, best to send it everywhere. <laughs> I want I, – I want to – I'm going to – Put in a plug for Igenix. I just heard their director give a presentation and they have a new Lyme panel where they do a PCR, they do an immunoblot, which is Western blot-ish, but it's, it's more technical than that. And then I think they also do a Western blot on top of that. And she said that what they find is depending on the stage of the disease, the different tests are more sensitive. So they've, yeah. they've got this no, new immunoblot and they have one on the relapsing fever side of Borrelia and one on the Lyme side. So each of these immunoblots tests for about 10 different, uh, uh, variations on the, on the Borrelia. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, I, I know there are some other more sophisticated tests in the pipeline, but right now it's like they're, they're pretty good. 
They're actually pretty yeah. good. And unfortunately, uh, here things go state by state in terms of approval. And New York State hasn't yet approved these new tests. And, you know, we're just kind of holding our breath and, until that comes along. So the, the Igenix is, pre- yeah, is pretty good. They, and their new tests are even better. We've got um, our own Lyme testing lab, uh, Australian Biologics. But she's been uh, hounded, basically, and hamstrung. Like Globally, she's playing with the big players, but in Australia, she's not recognized. Okay, good. Um, that's a place called uh, Australian Biologics. We also have now the um, Dr. Stephen Graves, who is um, was the spokesperson for the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. He has his own Rickettsial lab in Geelong, which is in the south in Victoria in Australia. And he was Senate witness for the no side. Well, there's no proof. Hmm. And he came out and published a, a paper saying there's no Lyme disease in Australia before as part of, he was a, one of the invitees for the clinical advisory committee on Lyme disease, which was in 2012, 13 finalized in 14 at a, with a stale bait. And, uh, he gazumped the chief medical officer at the time who hadn't, he hadn't even published his findings of the committee, and he published that there is no Lyme disease in Australia. He's now set up a Lyme testing lab. Um, <laughs> so, And he's friends with Russell and Dogga, so they're of the same ilk. Um, and he's retired from medicine, and he's doing this for his retirement little project, I think. Um, so, and he does get positives for Borrelia from people who've never left Australia, but if they've never, they don't have a travel history, he calls them false positives even though they're coming from his own lab. Yes, I love false positives. They make me yeah. want to hit people. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. And then um, we, obviously, as a uh, patient organization, we don't have any health professionals on our team, so we don't actually endorse one lab or another. But we have um, provided a service of shipping the hygienics kits to Australians because um, the pr- president prior to me, they just had just terrible, terrible trouble with international shipping and patients were just going through such torture trying to get them. So we now um, import them here bulk and th- the orders for hygienics kits in Australia where patients decide with their doctors or now they have to decide for themselves because there really isn't any doctors here. Right. We ship the kits to them. But that's not an endorsement. But yeah, we do see patients getting positive. You know, I, I would... Um, in the next year, I want to prioritize looking after myself a bit more again and taking a look at what my current picture is. And, you know, really, I, I've, my nature is I can, you know, I can care for others over myself. And I think it's time I'm starting to slide backwards a bit. Yeah. So, um, but I would, I would probably choose to get tested at both Arvin Lab and, because yeah. um, it's chronic, right? So, absolutely. I've, like, I've, been, I've interviewed both of them. Uh, well, actually, I haven't interviewed the, 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 the Igenix Lab, but I've interviewed, uh, Dr. Armin and he's just absolutely, uh, just wonderful. Yeah. He's got a great lab over there in Germany as well. So I would just a little, little, uh, technical thing. So, th- I don't know if you're up to speed. The the Igenix, ha- it is a brand new test that they do have. So and yeah, I, d- I did that with some the Better Health Kai interview. Yeah, okay, uh, very very good. Phenomenal, okay. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I haven't listened to the whole thing because I've been too busy, but it's on my it, list, and I 
As long as you know they've got a new test and it's a new number, it's not just a Western blot, it's an immuno blot, so it's testing for multiple strains all at once, and not just the two strains, it's testing for like 10 strains. And that Mm -hmm. they do have one for the, again, the relapsing side and then fever side of Borrelia, and then also for more the Lyme kind of arthritis and neurological side on on the other side there. Now, so you just mentioned here, and let's wrap up the interview this way. So what? how are you going to take care of yourself? Is it just kind of to fade into the background, or do you have a plan? What are you going to do? Uh, listen, um, my dream, the reality is we don't have a lineup of volunteers waiting. <laughs> so uh, my dream would be to um, not like be more part-time. Um, this takes up all my time and it, it could take up more and it and it also requires more skills than I have and definitely with the declining uh, cognitive ability I would like to, I would like someone with a fully healthy brain you know servicing sick Australians I would still always contribute um, I'm always happy happy to help and you know I don't really I don't need to be lead, the leader of this you know I'm happy to help with the emails I'm happy to help with talking to patients. I'm happy to help with doing interviews like this, whatever. I'm happy to re- represent the board and the organization. Um, you know, and I um, had the, the blessing. Somebody gifted me a trip to um, Cyprus a few years ago, a year and a half ago. And I had um, 10 pass ozone. And I was, I had phenomenally good results. Um, and so I'm not sure if that's, uh, because ozone kills the tick virus, which is you know quite often unrecognized in this whole picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if it really helps with inflammation. And there's an you know a, a cellular inflammatory cascade that's happening for some kind of trigger, whether that's pathogen based. Like, I don't know if I have act- active pathogen illness now. I know I'm still disabled, and right. so I would. I just want to. I would like to get back into full vitality and and. Um, but I don't mean to leave this mission at all because it's, you know, by no means solved and it. We need way more than what we've got now. We don't need people leaving. So, so yeah, I would get tested at Armin and Igenix and just to see a current picture because mm-hmm. um, I really haven't been tested since 2006. And that was a very, you know, rudimentary kind of test then. So yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Know. And I, I think, yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? You yeah. know, and um, so that's my goal in the next year. And, but no, we've got a lot of work to do in Australia and we need to set up uh, systems for patients. You know, we, we also have um, a multi, we've got a, we've just formed a scientific advisory board. So we're still working with government and we won't stop working with government. You know, they really should be called to action to do the right thing for Australians. Um, but we're also going to fundraise and push our own progress, you know, parallel to that. And, um, and and as an adjunct, it's very collegiate. Um, you know, we'd like to work with them, um, but we've got researchers ready to um, apply for some of this three million dollars. That's I think should be coming out in the next two to six weeks. That it'll be the research questions will be published and the, it'll be open for applications for this money. And we're developing our own scientific advisory board, of which I've got some very prestigious medical brains and research brains on that. Uh, Dr. Horowitz has recently, uh, you know, given us the great privilege of um, agreeing to be our patron, our first patron. 
And we've got some ambassadors coming on board to help, you know, raise the profile and awareness and, and, uh, and also um, later this year, hopefully raising some bigger money to start getting some really, you know, precision medicine model, multidisciplinary type work for sick Australians and, you know, seeing what works best, not only in testing, but in treating. So if you're listening and you're Australian or plan to emigrate anytime soon and want to volunteer, <laughs> how, how can Absolutely. they get hold of you? Well, just on our website, LymeDisease.org.au, there's a contact us button. And um, you'll most likely be referred to myself or one of our board members. Um, we've just got an amazing board, uh, um, just some really smart, dedicated people and the privilege to work with each of them. And um, we have, you know, we're very respectful of anybody's current state of health. So, so, and you know what? What I found is that when I volunteered, because I was sort of in this place where I realized I was never going to be 100%. I mean, I don't know if that's true now, but at that time, that's what I thought. And I thought I'm happier contributing. And I get many reports from people saying, at least I can do something. Yes. And it does offer a sense of community and teamship and camaraderie. And it, you do need to have a bit of um, persistence and um, resilience <laughs> in this journey because the, there's highs and lows. Um, but we're doing it together. And it's a, you know, it's a fantastic cause. That's such a great point. And there's always some small job that needs to be done as well as the big jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they all, you know, in our team, we're very flat. Um, none of them are more important than another. And, you know, we can't, the big jobs can't be done without all the little ones being handled. You know, I do emails every day and we're, we're all in the same boat, you know, trying to help sick Australians and make a difference for, you know, to stop that funnel. That's it. You know, we need to stop the funnel of people coming into this and not being recognized. And, you know, our survey shows that people on average have 10 years to diagnosis in Australia. Yeah. So then we've got a very serious and disabling situation for those people. Yeah. That's got to change. Absolutely. Sharon. Thank you, you for what you're doing. You're very, very welcome. Uh, thank you for your time. You've been very generous. We've been talking now for for an hour and none of it was filler. And there's, there's so much, uh, there's so much to be done over there. And, uh, I hope that, uh, we can get this message out through this podcast. And, you know, we do have on this podcast, we do have 184 separate episodes. And there, if you dig through the archives, there's some Australians there. So maybe I should group them together at the, the top of the, the SoundCloud page, but you can go through the interviews and find any topic that you're interested in and listen. And I know some people, they're so sick, they can't even read. I've gotten emails over the years saying, you know, thank goodness there was a podcast I could listen to because I just couldn't focus enough to read. And just hearing, you know, yeah. a voice out there, just made all the difference in the world and helped me get through some dark times. So we're, you know, it's, you know, agree more. yeah. So let's, you know, let's keep, let's keep fighting here, here in my neck of the woods, we get snowstorms. And I like to say that, you know, it, every little snowflake, you join enough of them together and you get a snowstorm and something happens. So if you want to think about that in terms of rain and floods or however, so each of us is important and mm-hmm. uh, only, but only important if we join together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. 
This was a fascinating interview. And I have a question, actually. Sharon talked a few times about how uh, a doctor recommended that Lyme disease be treated as an emerging disease. And I, she said that a few times, and I still wasn't like 100% sure what she meant by that. Do you? You know what? That's a question I should have asked. <laughs> Here is, and so I'll comment on it anyway, because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> it's what I'm best at. <laughs> that's why we have a podcast, that's right? That's why we have a podcast, right. <laughs> no, we try. that's why we have a guest on the podcast. Yeah. So you don't have to listen to this knucklehead all day. So emerging may be a category within diseases, kind of giving it the label that, okay, we're something new's happening, we don't quite have a handle on it, and we need to pay more attention to it. So that's how I interpreted that. Okay. So emerging, not that this is the first time anybody's ever seen it, but really to treat it as something that's not under control, that is getting worse, yeah. emerging that way. And yeah. I think that's what that was meant to that. To denote, and that's her her point there. I think it's very well taken. Yeah, you know, like definitely. Zika for sure is an emerging disease, right? Because yeah. it's new, and we may have been around for a hundred years, but nobody knew about it, and now it's bothering people, and we're all scared about it. So yeah. it gets our attention. But Lyme disease, you know, it's kind of been around. The experts yeah. think they've got it under control, but if they started treating it as emergent emergent disease, and that's a little bit happening around this community, the doctors are waking up a little bit. Yeah. So hopefully that's also indication that things all over the country and then all over the world are also yeah. beginning to shift. Yeah, because any shift over into taking Lyme disease more seriously is only going to is be a, a good benefit. Shift. Absolutely. Yeah. If you like what we're doing here at Lyme Ninja Radio, please share this interview. And if you really like what we're doing, give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. And you can do that right in your podcast app. And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it if you donate $1 a month through Patreon. Yes. For just $1, you can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. And you can head on over to our new homepage, www.limeninjaradio.com, and look for the Patreon link under the How Can We Help You section. A big shout out to our newest patrons, Caleb and Gemma. Thank you for making the world a better place for people with Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. Also, I wanted to say thank you again to our listeners. Last month in June, we had the most downloads ever, and I wanted to ask a favor. Write in to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com and let us know how you heard about us. Yes, please. Just a short email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com and just let us know if you heard from a friend, stumbled across us on Google... We're trying to get the message out there, and knowing how you found us will help us figure out how we're going to help other people find us. Does that make sense? Anyway, it's a marketing thing. So just send us a little feedback. We'd appreciate it. Yeah. All right. And last. I always say lastly. And last. As you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not end without the Lime Ninja fact of the day. What is it, Aurora? Did you know... At the DMV, ninjas make their own line. Lime 
Ginger Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.